We cannot have God as Father without the church as our mother. That picture is from one of my holidays, uh, Budapest, and that's the church of St. Matthias, well worth seeing, very, very beautiful. You won't see any more of my holidays for the rest of the, the talk. I know, it's a shame. It'd be very boring, I'm afraid. So, but there we go. Um, there, there was a, a passage quoted from the shepherd of Hermas, who was a second century writer, in, in the catechism of the church. And it says, the world was created for the sake of the church. Which is quite a statement to make, isn't it? Because one of the things we've been saying in the conference so far is that the world was made for the sake of Christ. That's what St. Paul says. All things were made through him and for him. Through him and for him. And in, in him, all things hold together. And elsewhere, St. Paul also says that in all things, he holds the primacy. Okay? He's, he holds the primacy. But we're also saying that because all things were made for Christ, therefore all things were made for the sake of the church. And there's a this is from the uh, Catechism, um, paragraph 760, the, these two passages. God created the world for the sake of communion with his divine life. Again, that's been part of the theme so far. We've been trying to show that we're made for God. God is not an additional, optional extra to our lives. We need God. So God created the world for the sake of communion with his divine life, a communion brought about by the convocation of men in Christ. And this convocation is the church. The church is the goal of all things. It's quite a statement to make that the church of which we are members is the real goal of everything. When we talk about history, the real history of the world is marked out by the journey of the church throughout the centuries. That's the real hub of history. That's the real centre of history. And um, there's a quotation from St. Clement of Alexandria which says, just as God's will is creation and is called the world, so his intention is the salvation of men and it is called the church. Okay? And while, of course, many Christians, not all, would perhaps agree with saying, well, yes, we might be able to identify with the idea that creation was made for the sake of Christ... A lot of people balk at the idea of the church. But we, what we want to show today is the intimate union and connection there is between Jesus and the church. So, Richard Raw. Anyone know about Richard Raw? Yeah, ooh, oh my goodness, yeah. Yeah, he's quite a writer. There's some, some of his stuff spiritually is quite good. But when it gets into theology, it gets all a little bit kind of blah, 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 like that. You can't put that into words, but that's what it becomes. And this is what he says on page 33 of his book. It's a very strange statement for someone who's a member of a religious order, I think. He says, when we overplayed the Jesus card and made Jesus into the founder of our new religion, we forgot that he died, I believe, a faithful Jew. Doesn't mention resurrection. He did not know he was founding the Christian religion in, in his human mind, which is rather clear from the Gospels if we are honest about them. I surely hope Catholics know that he never heard of the Roman Catholic Church or any other church for that matter. He went to the synagogue and the temple. Shocking for us, I suppose, but a necessary shock. So, I can see you're not happy with that, are you? <laughs> no, quite right. So, what's up? 
Richard Rohr is wrong. <laughs> and I can sit down now. He's wrong because of a number of features. And I just want to go through little elements of the scripture. This is very much part of the talk, but it's, and it's an important part. Because what we're trying to establish is the intimate union between Jesus and the church. And in John's gospel, a group of Greeks who are in Jerusalem approach Philip and say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, any of the requests that are made of Jesus in John's gospel, but all of the gospels, I believe personally, and it's perhaps a hint for the, the great catechists and priests here amongst us and lay people, I believe that the questions and the requests that people make in the scriptures of Jesus are the manifestations of the human heart. You could create a great catechetical program around those requests. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And that's the desire of the human heart. Father Louise, my little friend, my little wounded friend from earlier on, he, he, he mentioned, and he went, he's a wounded healer, of course, but anyway, he, he, he talked today a lot about how ultimately Jesus is our salvation. We need Jesus Christ. We need him. And if that's the case, of course we want to see him. It's a natural human thing. We want to meet him. If Jesus is our bread of life, if he is the fulfillment of our existence, if he is our, 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 our staple diet, the bread of life, if he is the truth of our life, if he reveals love to our life, if he redeems us from our sin, if he gives us sonship in, in, in himself, makes us the children of God, if he's the one who has come as God amongst men so that men might become God, of course we want to see him, we want to meet him. We want to meet him. We want to meet Jesus. The desire of the Greeks is the desire, I believe, of every human person. People may not realise it, but as Father Luigi mentioned earlier, very often people are looking for love in all the wrong places. I'm not going to tell you where he got that from, but that's another story. So, and of course there's another request that's made of Jesus. In John's Gospel, when, John, when Jesus begins to tell the people he ha he's, he's just had the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, and he begins to tell the people um, about the fact that he is the bread that has come down from heaven. The bread that I shall give is that which gives life to the world. He begins to talk about this great theme of the bread of life. And the people, you can tell their hearts begin to be touched. Something is stirring within them. And they say, Lord, give us that bread always. Note the word always. Lord, give us that bread always. That's a great desire. We want to have the bread of life that really feeds us, that really fulfills us, that gives satisfaction to all our desires, that satiates all that we hunger for in our lives, which will give us the love and the truth that we need, the relationship that we need. Lord, give us that bread always. Again, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, whom Jesus meets, and he begins to tell her about the living water. And she replies, Lord, give me some of that water so that I may never get thirsty and never have to come here again to draw water. It's true, at that point she, think, she thinks he's talking about physical water, but he's talking about the deeper water of the Spirit, which is to be given. But notice the word, she wants never to get thirsty. So she wants always to be fed by that word, by, by that water. 
always is an important word for us today. Because Jesus, at the end of Matthew's gospel, after he's risen from the dead, and he's about to ascend into heaven, speaks to the apostles, and he says, Know that I am with you always, yes, until the end of time. And when he says, I am with you always, first of all, there's that great word that Father Louise pointed out earlier, the I am of Jesus, reflecting the name that God gave to himself in, 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 in the book of Exodus, chapter 3. I am who I am. I am has sent me, has sent you to Pharaoh. But then he also says, always. Know that I am with you always. And who is the Jesus that's going to be with us always? Is it Jesus in a vague spiritual sense? No. It's the Jesus who's risen from the dead, who's really appeared to them, who's eaten fish with them, who's broken bread for them, the Jesus who is physically real, but risen and can no longer be contained by this world, can no longer be limited by this world. He is the Jesus who's always going to be with us. Yes, until the end of time. So this is not a, a vague spiritual promise that Jesus is making. Oh, I'm going to be with you in your memories. Oh, I'm going to be with you in your thoughts. Oh, I'm going to be with you in your desires. Oh, I'm going to be with you in a nice spiritual oozy-woozy sense somewhere. No, I am with you always. This, the me that's here before you, risen from the dead, in my risen humanity, I am with you always. That's important. It's a promise that has a real meaning to it. It's a great comfort to us as well, especially when we're feeling alone in life, especially when we're feeling isolated or attacked. As St. Paul says, you know, no matter, uh, no, no matter whether we're isolated or attacked in Romans chapter 8, no matter what happens, neither death nor life, no angel, no prince, nothing still to come, nothing that has happened, nothing that exists can separate us from the love of God, made visible, visible in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, Jesus then, as Father Louise pointed out earlier, um, says in John chapter 14 to the disciples, I shall return to take you with me so that where I am, you may be too. So that where I am, you may be too. This is not just a promise about heaven. This is a promise that the work that he does in the world is not just about us receiving him, but him taking us up. We're being gathered by him. That's got an important notion. We are being called, gathered, gathered, convoked by him into union with himself. We're being gathered to be where he is so that we may be with him. And that's something that has begun already. The church is already the gathering together of all the disciples uh, into Jesus and to the Father. But Jesus also makes the point to the apostles after his resurrection, as the Father has sent me, so am I sending you. Notice that pattern on the exact same mission that the Father sent me, I'm now going to send you. Okay, it's an important pattern. We're going to hear a lot about patterns today. So, um, so what Jesus is saying there, of course, is that he, the disciples are being sent out to represent him. Just as Jesus represented the Father, made him real. To have seen me, Philip, is to have seen the Father. To have seen me is to have seen the Father, he says. So if the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Through you, through you disciples, through you the apostles, 
I will be really present in the world. So, and just to reinforce this, notice this is a similar pattern to the, as the Father sent me, so am I sending you. Jesus says in a kind of reverse way, anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. And those who welcome me welcome the one who sent me. Just as a little aside, there are those people who kind of say, oh, John's Gospel has got completely nothing to do with the Synoptic Gospels. This is from Matthew's Gospel. It's exactly the same structural pattern to what John said in that quotation before. As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. Exactly the same pattern. This is a pattern of Jesus' own teaching. That's what that indicates. Okay, patterns. This is where we are. You'll have heard in the first couple of talks, we've talked in the faith movement, we've got a lot of stuff about the uni- what we call the unity law of control and direction, which basically means that the universe has a plan, that the universe is lawful, that the universe makes sense. And when we observe the universe, we see it's an evolving universe that involves the development of patterns, of new unities. So from the lower elements or lower particles, we see that through various interactions with their environment, they, they are, you might say, become part of higher unities and more developed unities. So, you know, from the less complex forms of life, we eventually see an evolution to more complex forms of life. Now, I'm not going to go through that all that again, because I think Father Stephen Dingley and, and Father Matt did a very good job with that. But just worth noting that in the universe, we see patterns all the time. We see new unities. The environment gives control and direction to them. So, for example, we know that birds, for example, the sparrows flying over my mum and dad's house in Luton, which had not been eaten by the inhabitants, they, are, they, are, they have control and direction. They have times and seasons. There are times when they are there in Luton, and there are times when they are very happy to be leaving Luton. So, and, and, but, of course, they don't really have a choice about it, it's by instinct. The environment, as, as, as the seasons change, they get the signal and they go. The rest of us can choose to fly from Luton Airport. That's what we can do. That's what human beings do. There are human beings who fly from Luton Airport. It really is true. So the fact is that we, we have that choice. And that's a very different thing. We don't live by instinct like the animals do. So the environment gives control and direction or meaning and purpose to everything within it. And the patterns aren't arbitrary. They're not inventions. They're not our inventions. We're not looking at the universe and saying, um, oh, well, I'm imagining that that's a pattern. Um, It's not really a pattern. It's all just absolute chaos. None of it makes sense at all. No, we're able to observe and we're able to apply what we understand about the universe, what we understand about the patterns of the universe, the laws of the universe, into our technology. Hence, the the beloved mobile phone um, is, is an application of that knowledge. The patterns are real. They're not our inventions. And this is also true, I just want to delve just very quickly, a little bit into a bit of uh, psychotherapy for you. It's very true in human relationships as well. There's a um, Freud, Sigmund Freud, um, was uh, some, one great contribution he made to psychotherapy is the idea that we all have patterns in our lives from the past which often come up again. And this is true often in, in people who are unwell. Very often, so John Pridmore, for example, talked about how a lot of his, um, uh, 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 his behaviour, um, which we shall not describe in too much detail, a lot of his behaviour 
went back to that feeling of abandonment. find that often with drug addicts and alcoholics that I work with. A lot of what has happened to them goes back to that abandonment. And so they're trying to, in one way or another, fill themselves, fill that sense of loss inside themselves. And so they'll use drugs and alcohol and other things in order to do that. They might use the internet, they might use gambling, whatever. Okay. And, th th and that's not a bad insight. One of the things that, um, one of the areas that has been developed a lot is what's called attachment theory. And this has been done through observation of children and human beings. And what it says is that in, those, in the early six months, or early year and a half perhaps, or, or two years, it's important for the child to have its mother. Because the mother is a secure base for the child. And as the child grows, as the child has connection with the, with the mum, and has love from the mother, and has knowledge from the mother, notice those three things, connection, contact with the mum, knowledge and love from mum, they begin to explore, they feel safe enough, secure enough to explore. And if that, that kind of, that relationship of the mother to the child is consistent, then that child will eventually develop a secure pattern of behaviour, a secure base within themselves. Where a parent doesn't do that, where the child, parent is inconsistent in that caregiving, or even neglectful, the child will develop an insecure attachment. So what we're saying here is that from our earliest stages, part of life is that we have patterns in our lives, and that even our own early attachments are sim symbolic of those patterns as well. And not just symbolic, but they really do affect how we relate in, in, in later life. The good news is, the good news, of course, with that is, and I think it's an indication of our spiritual soul, is that we may have received insecure attachments, insecure um, relationships from our parents. It is possible to change that. It's possible to move from insecure to secure. It is possible for the addict to be completely crushed by addiction and move to a freedom from it. And that seems to me can only be explained by the spiritual soul. Indeed, we know for facts from scientific evidence, we know that the one thing we know always works in getting people out of addiction is religious conversion. Just a fact, we know that. Carl Jung, who is the, uh, one of the great fathers of, of psychology, makes that point um, to the founder of AA. He basically said, well, we really despair of you alcoholics. There's not really not much hope for you. It wasn't, it wasn't a great counselling technique. Not much hope for you. The only thing that's going to happen is a religious conversion. And that's what Bill W., the founder of AA, got, a religious conversion. Okay, I'm going on too long, so let's move on. The point is that when God communicates with us, he's going to communicate in a way that we can understand. He's going to use words and actions and patterns because that's what we use to understand. That's how we relate to the world. That's how we relate to each other. And the patterns of revelation reflect the overall unity law, that God's plan is one wisdom and one design. So we're saying then that the patterns that we have in our lives and that we can change for the spiritual, and that's wonderful news, um, but the patterns are actually just a reflection of the fact that, that the whole of um, reality has got a pattern, a unity law. It's got control and direction. It's, a, it, it, it's where every existent thing needs the environment 
in order to live and to grow and to thrive and develop. It needs it. Now, the Old Testament in the Bible prepares for the New Testament. We know that. And what we see there are many patterns that point to the model for all patterns, Jesus Christ. That's important because very often people will make out, well, you know, your interpretation of the Old Testament, you're just making it up. You're just seeing patterns that aren't there. No, they're there. There are patterns throughout the Old Testament. Uh, for example, the pattern of the temple we know is based upon, the pattern of the temple that was built in Jerusalem is based upon a pattern that Moses saw when he was at Mount Sinai and which he tried to reproduce in the tent of meeting. So these are all patterns, and they're patterns that point towards the future. As Louis, Father Louis pointed out, um, they all point towards the one who is to come, to Jesus Christ. And so the great pattern we can look at in the Old Testament is the kahal of Israel. And the word kahal is where we get the word ecclesia from in Greek and Latin, and that's where we get the, name, the word church from, okay? So, and the word kahal, what it means is those who've been assembled by God. So you sometimes get these hymns, don't you? Gathering hymns. We're having a gathering hymn at the beginning of Mass. And gathering hymns are wonderful, but the emphasis is slightly wrong because it implies that somehow the church is us gathering together. In the Old Testament, the church, the church of Israel, the Kahal of Israel, was not the people gathering themselves together. There were two elements. First of all, they had to be descended from Abraham, from the 12, from the 12 sons of Abraham, which made the 12 tribes, uh, the 12, the 12, uh, tribe, the 12 sons of, of Jacob, rather, who became the 12 tribes of Israel. And the second element of this Kahal, this church of Israel in the Old Testament, is that the people, the assembled people, they became a people because they were led out of slavery from Egypt to be the people that God had chosen and gathered in an identity that he gave them. So the identity of the church of Israel is given by God, not given by themselves. And it was reenacted ritually every year in the Passover meal. Every year they would reenact what God had done because it was the foundational event of their identity as a people, uniquely saved by God. So God saved them from Egypt, that's what makes them a people. It's God's action, not their coming together, not their putting, creating committees. No, no, none of that. No committees in Israel, you're pleased to know. It's God who makes them a people. And we know that the formation of Israel continued once they got into the desert. A covenant was given at Mount Sinai, by which they became God's people, and he became their God. And that covenant involved um, them promising to live <coughs> as a people of God, to follow the commandments. This is the kind of people a people of God is. They live in this way, and that's what they had to do. And they were assembled by God to enact the covenant in a sacrifice with blood. So if you remember in the story, Moses builds an altar with 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes of Israel, and he sacrifices all sorts of animals, and he uses the blood to show, to, he throws the blood over the altar and then over the people to show that between the people and God, there is an intimate life connection. That's important, an intimate life connection, because in the Old Testament, blood is what gave life, or rather the life was in the blood. Put it like that, the life was in the blood. 
So there's an intimate connection. God, so God calls the kahal of Israel together. He calls the people. He gives them a law. He makes them his people. And it's enacted ritually um, by a great sacrifice, which shows they are one with, with each other. But Israel have to behave and live as the people of the covenant, and they have to follow the law. So what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do? Well, and this is where, just bear in mind what I've just been saying. From his followers, he chooses 12 apostles. The people of the old people, the old kahal of Israel, had 12 tribes to begin with. So the 12 tribes is how you became a member of the people. Uh, so it began with 12 tribes, 12 sons of Jacob. This, what Jesus is doing, he chooses 12 apostles. The people in Israel at the time would have seen that and said, ah, there's a pattern, there's a sign, he's saying something. It's not just a nice number. He's saying something very deliberate. At a mount, on a mountain in Matthew's Gospel, he offers a development of the law. He gives a new teaching around which his followers are to base their lives. The Beatitudes, for example. So Matthew's Gospel, chapters 5 to 7, you'll see this wonderful teaching he gives. And that is, again, a sign. Because Moses had done the same at Mount Sinai. He'd given the people a law to live by. So the people at the time would have said, oh, he's doing something here. He's doing something. Like Moses, like in, the Old Testament, like in the Old Testament, something is happening here. Twelve apostles, a new law to live by, given on a mountain. And at the Passover meal, he introduces a new foundational ritual. He takes bread and says, this is my body. And he takes blood, wine, and he says, this is the chalice of my blood of the new and eternal covenant. So, just as Moses had sacrificed animals and said that this is the blood of the covenant to the people, now Jesus was giving his blood to say this is the blood of the new and eternal covenant. Not just a covenant for a time, but a covenant forever. All of this points to the establishment of a new kahal, a new ecclesia, a new church, if you have eyes to see. And I must send Richard Ross some glasses. But anyway, that's another story. So what does Jesus teach that helps us? Well, in the Old Testament, you'll see all sorts of interesting quotations. So, for example, first of all, in Psalm 79, you brought a vine out of Egypt, visit this vine and protect it. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And what's interesting about this is that in the Old, in the Old Testament, um, Israel is the vine that's been brought out of Egypt. In the New Testament, Jesus doesn't just say the apostles are the vine, he's the vine as well. He's the vine and they're the branches. So all of a sudden, God and the chosen ones have become very much, much more, much closer and more intimate than in the Old Testament. My friend had a vineyard on a fertile hillside Yes, the vineyard of the Lord Sabaoth is the house of Israel. That's from Isaiah chapter 5. Jesus then gives a parable about a man planted a vineyard. But he de and, and if you, you can look that, uh, the parable of the vineyard up in Mark's Gospel, chapter 12. But he makes the point that he will give the vineyard to others. So the vineyard is going to belong no longer to Israel. It's going to belong in a wider context. O shepherd of Israel, hear us, it says in Psalm 79. You who lead Joseph's flock. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. 
So when they're saying, O shepherd of Israel, hear us, they're talking to God. And then Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. He's the shepherd now. He's the fulfillment of this Old Testament pattern. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And there are other sheep I have that are not of this fold. And these I have to lead as well. There will be only one flock and one shepherd. So Jesus is saying, yes, I am the, I am the shepherd of the flock, the flock of Israel. But the flock is going to get bigger because it's going to include others who are not in Israel. And finally, as you remember, at the end of, uh, in Exodus chapter, uh, uh, chapter 24, Moses says to the people, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. And then the elders go up the mountain with Moses, and a curious phrase, they say, it says, they gazed on God. They ate and drank. What did they eat and drink? We don't know. Maybe a prefigurement of the Eucharist. Who knows? But Jesus says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me and I live in him. So Jesus is teaching us this whole, this, this pattern really is hopefully becoming clearer and clearer as we go along. Jesus is teaching us that the patterns of the Old Testament about the church of Israel are being fulfilled in him. But it's going to be a bigger church. It's going to be a more universal church. It's going to involve sheep from other places. And as a church, this kahal, this new vine, includes Jesus himself. It's an intimate unity there. So I want to just go back briefly here, because it's worth saying, because it feeds into what we're saying, this pattern of this unity law that we go on about in the faith movement, this pattern of the fact that contact with the environment is essential if something is to grow and thrive. We see that on our planet. We see that with plants. We see that with animals. If something is to grow and thrive, it needs contact with its environment. If it doesn't have contact with its environment, it will die. If you take a fish out of water, it will die. If you take a daffodil out of the ground and don't put it in water, it will die. But eventually it will die in the water because it's no longer attached to its normal environment, which is the soil of the earth. We human beings also, of course, grow and develop through contact with others, which includes love and knowledge. So take, for example, what we said earlier about attachment theory, about the fact that a child needs a mum in order to grow healthily and to develop a secure base. And if the mum is consistent in her caregiving, that is, in giving love, in giving contact, and giving knowledge, then the child will grow and develop a secure personality, a secure base within themselves. Where mum doesn't do that, there, there will be problems. And, you know, most people, many people have secure base. Some people have a bit of secure and insecure. And some people have insecure. And those who are very damaged have what we call a disorganised attachment. But I'm not going to go into all of that. But it's worth saying. If you want to read more, you'll find more ab about that. But the important thing is, is that as human beings, it's part of our nature that those who give us life, we have contact with them. That, we, that they communicate to us knowledge and love. Mummy, when, you know, when, when the child is wandering near a fire, mummy will say, don't go there. That's mummy giving knowledge. That's mummy giving truth. And that's also mummy giving love. And maybe as well, mummy has to take, him, take the child away. And that's mummy giving contact. That's, that's how these things work. Well, we are saying, of course, as, as has been said in the talks, that God is our environment. 
In him we live and move and have our being. That's what St. Paul says in chapter 17 of, of the Acts of the Apostles. In him we live and move and have our being. That's an environment. And as Father Louise pointed out, Jesus is our bread of life. He's our staple diet. So how can I today have contact with Jesus and receive from him the life that he alone gives? How can I receive from him the truth that he reveals? And how can I experience the love that he has for me? How can I meet Jesus? Sir, we want to see Jesus. Well, the kahal of Israel will become the universal kahal. And this is how Jesus will answer that desire of the heart. I want to see Jesus. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus turns to Peter when Peter makes that act of faith. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. His name is Simon up to that point. And then Jesus changes his name and says, You are Peter. You are the rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church, my kahal. It's a very deliberate use of language. And he chooses Peter. He's creating a new church so that he who is our bread of life, he who is our teacher, he who is our redeemer and our saviour, can be not restricted to just one place, but be Lord of all places, of all times, and of all people. And the way in which he will do that is through sending out the apostles. And the apostles are the beginning of the church. The church finds its origin in Jesus. Jesus chooses the twelve, and he sends them out on his mission so that they can carry, make him present to all peoples of all times. And as a result, as St. John says in John's Gospel, to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So the disciples, the apostles, are sent out to carry Christ to people, but also to gather them into Christ. So it's a kind of outward and an inward movement. Okay, I'm not trying to hypnotise you. Outward and inward movement. Okay, so um, that's what Jesus is doing. As the Father sent me, we've seen this quotation already, even so am I sending you. Jesus sends them out on his mission. And he says at the end of, the, of, of uh, Matthew's Gospel, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations. So the church is the ongoing presence of Christ in the world. The, the church is established so that we can meet Jesus today, you and me. We can experience his whole self and his truth and his love because it is the fulfilment of something Jesus said. We can be fulfilled because the church is how Christ continues to be present in the world today. We can be fulfilled as we meet him, as we know him, and as we love him, not just from time to time, but in an always way. That's the key thing. Jesus, when he says, I am with you always until the end of time, how was he going to fulfill that promise? He was going to fulfill it through the church. And the apostles are the beginning of that church. And they go out and they establish churches, groups, communities in different places. And they hand on to them the message of salvation. And not just the message of salvation, but the means, the instruments of that as well. St. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, makes a wonderful point about the church. He says that Jesus Christ is the head of the church, which is his body, 
the fullness of him who fills the whole of creation. So another way of saying this is if you want to meet Jesus today, if you want to meet Jesus, go to the church. In the church you will meet Jesus in his fullness. You'll meet him in an intimate way and you will encounter him externally and internally. The church and Jesus are one. That's the point. St. Paul says that we are his body and he is the head. You can't divide the two. Another way of, of, of imagining that is that we are cells of Christ. We are all individual cells of the body of Christ. That's what we are. We've been gathered into unity with him. As a result, we, we receive from him our life. He is the vine we are the branches. The church is the way in which he maintains union with us and gives us life. But he also tells us, St. Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, that the, the, the original marriage of all marriages is the marriage between Jesus and the church. He is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. And that all other marriages, the sacrament of marriages, are reflections or participations in that great original marriage. The whole point about that is that it's an always thing. The love of Jesus is forever. It will never be taken back. It is always given. And as a result, the, the relationship between Christ and the church will never be broken. And we encounter Christ in the church, in her teaching, her sacraments, her whole life, her whole self. <clears throat> That's how we encounter Christ. To the apostles and their successors, he gave authority to teach in his name going to note this pattern again. Um, Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. Anyone who listens to you listens to me. So it's a definite giving of authority to teach in Christ's name. To teach, you might say, with Christ's voice, with his authority, so that when the apostles speak the message of the faith, not just when they're talking about the weather, but when they speak the apostle, the, the message of the faith, we are hearing Christ himself teach us. Anyone who listens to you listens to me. Anyone who rejects you rejects me. And those who reject me reject the one who sent me. So notice that pattern with Matthew chapter 10, verse 40, and, and, and John uh, chapter 20. Um, As the Father sent me, so have I sent you. It, it's a familiar pattern. St. Paul uses that pattern as well. So again, he says we are ambassadors for Christ. And the whole point about of an ambassador is that when they go from one country to another, they carry the person and the voice and the authority of their, their ruler with them. That's what they do. They speak in the name of their ruler. They represent the ruler. That's what St. Paul is saying. We're ambassadors for Christ. We teach in Christ's name. And the, we, and the appeal we make to you all, says St. Paul, is be reconciled to God. And this is something, this teaching authority is given to the apostles and is guaranteed by the gift of the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit of truth comes, says Jesus at the Last Supper, he will lead you into the whole truth. And in a world, it makes sense that Christ, who is God, would want to leave his church with a guarantee that his teaching will not fail that it will speak in his voice, that it will be guaranteed by him, that it will be able to speak infallibly. Because in a world of pride, 
and of darkened intellect, we need a guaranteed place to hear Christ's truth. We need that. And that's what the church is. And that's where the bishops united to the Pope, the successor of Peter, have that authority. They have that authority given by Christ, handed on from one generation to another. But we also meet Christ in the sacraments. Also, because here he, make, he heals us, he makes us holy, and he gives us life. Now, as we know in our lives, we use actions, words, symbols, real substances to give truth, love, and life. So if I give Anna, uh, I don't know, a cabbage, she's not going to be that impressed, is she? Is she? Are you going to be impressed? No, there we go. <laughs> don't have good cabbages in Milton Keynes. But if I give her flowers, will you be impressed? Yes. It's a symbol. It's an action, but it communicates something, doesn't it? That's how we work as human beings. We work through signs and symbols and words. That's, that's, that, it's a part of the pattern of our lives. And God deals us in, with us in a way that we can understand. We know that. And so the sacraments are the instruments that Jesus uses so that we can have contact with him and so that we can be one with him. We can have real union with Jesus. Oops, go back. Um, and the sacraments usually involve designated actions or words or symbols that, that Jesus has given to us, to his church, and they guarantee... They are guaranteed patterns for encountering and meeting Jesus Christ, for being one with him. Now, I'm not going to go through all of this because we're running out of time. The seven sacraments and their matter. The matter basically is what's used in the sacraments, okay? So you've got, but you can see what we use are either natural substances or patterns or words or symbols. It's what we use because that's the way, the way God communicates to us. That's the way he's done. He works with us. He works in a way that we can understand. So water for baptism, the oil of chrism for confirmation, bread and wine for Holy Communion, uh, for penance, the confession of sins and the words of absolution, matrimony, the vows and union of a man and a woman, holy orders, there's the laying on of hands upon a man, and the, oil, and the chrism oil as well, and the anointing of the sick, there's oil used there. All of them are physical or tangible or observable signs. And Jesus says through them, you can be sure that at this moment I am here. I continue to be with you always, yes, until the end of time. And each of the sacraments uh, speaks to different elements of our personalities that need salvation and that need redemption. Now, I'm not going to go through them all, but I just want to pick out a few little things from, from some of the sacraments. Baptism, for example. We need baptism. I believe, what do we say? We, we acknowledge, acknowledge, I confess the, the um, baptism for the forgiveness of sins, for the remission of sins. We need baptism for forgiveness of sins, but also for much more. And of course, the pattern of sin, as we've heard, um, I think it was Father Kevin's talk, well, pattern of sin is man tries to be God on his own. Man tries to be his own, human beings try to be their own environment instead of realising God is their environment. They think they can do it all on their own, they're self-sufficient. The absolutism of the individual. And that's a lie. Because none of us are absolute. None of us can do life on our own. We know that instinctively. None of us can do life on our own. They are selling you a lie in our society where they call you individuals, 
We're persons, human persons. They're selling you a lie when they say to you, you've got to do life on your own. Life is what you make of it. That's a lie. We need each other to live. We need each other. But we also, most of all, we need God. We need God. Without God, life, um, life falls apart. I find that, I always find it fascinating working with um, drug addicts and alcoholics. Those who get better go to AA or NA, Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, and all the other 12-step uh, meetings. The ones who get better are those who believe in God, because essential to the 12-step philosophy is without God, you cannot get better. Only God can take you out of addiction. So most of those who go to those meetings, if you say, well, I don't really believe in God, um, they'll just laugh at you. Because for them, a connection with God is life or death. They know that it's only a relationship with God that gets them out of addiction. It's a luxury of the chattering classes to imagine that we don't need God. Those who live on the edge of reality know from deep and dark and painful experience they need God, we need God. It's only God. I often hear this. It's only God, only my higher power that's keeping me alive today. That's what they often say. So, baptism. Well, baptism is, we're told by St. Paul that we are baptised into Christ's death so that we may rise up with him. So the baptism is the, is the application to us of the pattern of Christ's death and resurrection. His passion and his death and his resurrection are part of who he is forever. His sacrifice is one with him. That's why when he appears to the apostles, the wounds are still there. Put your finger here. Here are the nails. Here's the holes the nails made, Thomas. Put your, give me your hand, put it in my side. Doubt no longer, but believe. His sacrifice is part of who he is forever. And I always think the amazing thing about Christ on the cross, well, it's all amazing. What does Jesus do on the cross? He accepts the full power of sin, the full fury and anger and rage and, and isolation, and all that is evil and sin, which is trying to destroy God from the world. He accepts it all. And he doesn't complain because the pattern of sin in our world is I punch Father Louise, he's going to punch me back. I punch Father Stephen Brown, he's going to shoot me. <laughs> Whatever it is, there's an action and reaction. There's an action and reaction. And this is the tendency we have, and we all have that. Jesus, by his death on the cross, takes all of that in. He takes all of the action and reaction that we have with each other towards God and towards him. And what's his response? He accepts it. He prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He makes excuse for us. He establishes a new pattern, because after his resurrection, he turns around to the disciples in his first appearance in John's Gospel, and he doesn't say, where were you then? You all ran away. No. He says, peace be with you. He overcomes the old pattern of sin. But, and his is a peace that's real and that will join us to God. So, what he's saying, when we get baptised, water is a symbol of washing, of cleansing and of life. So, 
when we are baptized, the, the death and resurrection of Christ is applied to us, and death is made to sin. Death to sin. Sin is drowned. Sin is destroyed. Why do you think we say? We have to say it in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. We're saying the forgiveness of sins is real. Christ does destroy sin. Christ can overcome patterns of sin, even deeply ingrained ones in our being. He does that. He really can overcome them. And he begins that work in baptism. And he makes us rise to a new life. The forgiveness of sins is real. And as a result, the new life we have is by being joined to him because he's the vine and we're the branches. We are members of his body and all the life flows from his headship. All the life that comes into us flows from him, the vine. And it's that which overcomes the obstacle to sharing life with God. Death to sin, that's what he's accomplished. But more than that, he brings about rising to new life, rising to God's life. He raises us up to share in his identity. He is the son of God, and through him we become the children of God. And in that sense, we're being reintegrated into the, into the original pattern of the plan that God had for the whole universe, but reintegrated with a greater generosity and even more perfect beauty through the mystery of the cross and the resurrection. We are reconnected with our environment, with God. In the sacrament of confirmation, oil is used for strengthening. The Holy Spirit is given to us and he strengthens the new life of baptism. He makes us capable of being Christ's living members in the work church and in the world. I always love, though, that one of the first homilies of Pope St. John Paul II he says to the people, open the doors to Christ. It's a wonderful homily. Read it. Do read it. 1978. Well worth having a look at. Open the door, doors to Christ. It's his inauguration homily. And his whole point is, the world out there needs Jesus Christ. Without Jesus Christ, it is not fulfilled. It's a mess. Bring Christ into the world. We need people to do that. We need you to do that. The clergy can't be everywhere. It's not our job to be. But you can be in places we can't be. Each, one, each person has a vocation. Maybe politics, maybe medicine, maybe teaching, maybe art. Whatever it is, bring Christ with you. You are his living selves. You are his hands and his feet and his eyes and his mouth in the world. That's what Christ wants to use all of us for. Open the doors to Christ. Holy Communion, of course, is the fullest possible union with Jesus. It's the greatest sacrament. The bread and wine really become him, his body, blood, soul and divinity. And it's a, he gives himself as food for our journey. And it points towards the final unity when God will be all in all. It points us towards the promise of the life to come. And that's why we have such devotion to the Blessed Sacrament because we know it's Jesus. We know it's really him before us. He promised us, this is one of the ways he fulfills his promise of always being with us until the end of time. And confession is important because again, Jesus gives us the peace that flows from his death and resurrection. He applies that to us again and again. When we fall, when we sin, 
We name the sins, and he, and once again, he declares and makes real death to sin and makes us rise to a new life again. It enables us to live a life in the Spirit, no longer slaves to sin, but free with the truth and the love of Christ. And even long-established and damaging patterns can be healed, but that requires active cooperation. So that's worth saying too. It's wonderful to go to confession, but we have to also take the opportunities to work out, perhaps if we have more habitual sins, where is that coming from? Maybe see a spiritual director, maybe talk to a priest at a long, over a longer period of time. Where's my, this habitual thing coming from? What's the origin? What's, maybe it's in an, in an old hurt that needs healing. And Christ will heal, but we need to bring that to him to be healed. So, the church, I suppose, drawing to an end, I know I've gone over time, so apologies for that. Um, the church and the sacraments. The, the, continuation, the church is the continuation in history of Christ always. Because he is one, he is holy, he is Catholic, he is universal, he is apostolic, he was sent by the Father. As I was sent by the Father, so do I send you. And so the church is one and holy and Catholic and apostolic. Humanity needs Christ, and so needs the church and the sacraments. And as a result, that's why we need to preach the faith to the world out there, because life is dark and dangerous at times. And without Christ, it becomes even more so. And people need the light of Christ. If they want to be fulfilled, they need Christ in their lives. But I'm not going to get onto that. Extra ecclesia minimalis. You can ask me about that after. The church is in heaven as well as well as in purgatory. The church is unique because it's, as an institution, it does not have its foundation stones on earth. It's its foundation stones in heaven, Jesus Christ and the apostles. So you might say the church is being built from up, from up to down and then down to up. It's this upward and downward motion. Jesus is gathering us to himself as members of his body. And we united, through our union with Jesus, we united with all the saints in heaven and the souls in purgatory. And the saints in their lives on earth, in their struggles, because they had real struggles, and their surrender to God's grace and to his wisdom, they're living symbols of what it means to live in Christ. And the greatest saint of all, who lived union with Jesus and discipleship of him to the fullest, is Mary. And that will be the title of the next talk. Thank you very much for listening.